It is a weird thing um, to mention a trigger warning before scripture reading. A trigger warning, of course, alerts us to the possibility that the material we're going to hear is going to may produce a, a negative or even traumatizing reaction to us. Um, and, um, you know, I think because lots of us have experienced the Bible or have been taught the Bible is supposed to always be a comforting thing all the time, that the, the potential for um, trigger is even higher when we hear something like this, you know, not just in the world, but in the Bible. Um, we think, oh, terrible things happen in the world, but in the Bible, and then we hear this we hear the story, so um, the trigger warning continues. Um, I went to seminary at the age of 21, and uh, when I went to seminary at 21, I had read the Bible through only like one time. Um, I, had became a, I had become a Christian only a few years before in a college campus ministry, so when I went to seminary to become a pastor, I actually didn't know the Bible that well. So I say that, and aside is, for those of you who worry that, like, if you, maybe you're being called to something, but you feel like, oh, I don't have the skills of learning or the knowledge, like, hey, guess what? If you're called to it, God will equip you, all right? So I hadn't read the Bible, really, but when I went to seminary to learn how to be a pastor, so and I, I, I've done okay, right? So I just want to say, uh, you can learn as you go, right? So, uh, and not just with seminary, but anything, right? Like, you're smart people, you can learn, right? So anyway, reading the Bible for the first time. And um, one day in Old Testament class, uh, we were reading this story um, from a couple chapters before the story that was just read today, a couple chapters before this story, uh, it's the story of King David and Bathsheba. Do you have, you just, you, you know, maybe you know that story, maybe you don't know that story. Just let me give you a little family history, uh, some context for the reading that we had today. David, King David, is the father of uh, Tamar, I'm from the south, so I say Tamar, not Tamar, but either way works. So David's the father of Tamar and, from today's story, and David's also the father of Amnon, and David's the father of Absalom, and actually David's the father of many children because David has had many wives, which was totally a normal, uh, norm thing in that, in that time. Right? David's son Solomon had more wives and concubines and mistresses than any other king, the story says. So this is part of that culture, which always makes me think when people say, we got to get back to biblical family values. I'm like... What, exactly what part of biblical family values are we talking about? You know, do you want, uh, okay, so which part? Um, you could always ask people that. Um, so um, one of David's most famous wives is Bathsheba, who before he was, she was his wife, David had spied her bathing uh, in her house and had invited her. Actually, he had compelled her to come to his palace. He's the king, after all, and there's a lot of power. And so she came, and they had sex, and... She got pregnant, and David, in order to cover up the affair, uh, basically had her husband, because uh, Bathsheba was already married to Uriah, uh, David had her husband, Uriah, essentially killed, uh, essentially put out a hit on him in a, in a complicated way. So there's a scripture, and, uh, and then there's a scripture, and then there's, there's always how the scripture is interpreted, how the scripture is understood or thought about or taught, Right? Um, and I think it's really important that we talk about how we interpret or how we read or understand the scripture. And friends, I just want to say, don't let anybody ever tell you that they don't interpret the scripture. Don't let anybody ever tell you that they are someone who reads the scripture purely, black and white, without bias. They see it as it's meant to be seen because they don't read with any agenda or bias, right? If anyone ever tells you that, that doesn't mean that they're a bad person or... Um, you know, insincere, but they are wrong, right? Uh, it, it, we all, every one of us, read the scripture 
and interpret it. Every time we read the scripture, your brain thinks something, and you begin to, you begin to wonder, like, I wonder what that means. That's because you're interpreting, right? That's how it's supposed to go, right? So if anyone says, oh, I, I, this is the pure reading, usually that person is most always white, and usually a man, and it's always BS, okay? So if anyone says, <laughs> if anyone says this is the pure reading, don't trust them. They're not insincere necessarily, they're not necessarily a bad person, but they are wrong, all right? Uh, I say that in the name of Jesus. Um, we all interpret. And we have to be honest about that. We have to be honest about how every reading is interpretation because often the interpretation of the text has as much power or more power than the actual text itself, all right? And when I say the interpretation, how we pass on the, the, the thought about that text over generations. So here's the history of how the David and Bathsheba story is told. This is how it goes. Uh, maybe you've heard a sermon like this. Bathsheba, y'all, is a temptress. She is a seductress, and she has used her feminine wiles to lure poor King David, to lure him who is having a temporary but understandable lapse of willpower, to lure him into committing the act of adultery. Poor David and bad Bathsheba. Before I got to seminary, I had heard sermons like that. Uh, but more than sermons, I actually have heard that interpretation in a lot of pop music, secular music, secular literature, secular poetry. That interpretation of Bathsheba, the wily seductress, and David, the poor but understandable man who, you know. So we're in class, and that's the interpretation. I'm, we're reading the story, and that's the interpretation that's guiding me. And someone raises their hand in class, an Old Testament class, and says to the teacher, like, so I'm re reading this text, professor, and it seems clear to me that David raped Bathsheba. And lots of people in the class are like, oh, no, 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 this is, this is, this is pure, like, uh, consensual adultery. But then you read the text, and you're like, oh, my God, King David is a rapist. It's very triggering. It seems to be textually true. And then, to make matters even more complicated, you flip to the New Testament, because that's another thing we do, is like, oh, the Old Testament doesn't really matter. Flip to the New Testament, and what are the two of the Gospels that talk about where Jesus came, came from? They talk about how important it is that Jesus came from the royal line of who? David. So you've heard me say before, funnily, I hope, but also truthfully, that Jesus came from a trashy family. Uh, this is what I'm talking about. There's this concept in psychology called, I have this on the, on the screen, it's called the multi-generational family transmission process. Just throw that out at cocktail conversation and you'll, you'll be super, <laughs> people will be like, oh, you're really smart. Let <laughs> me tell you about the multi-generation family transmission process. This basically describes, it's very simple, how values, attitudes, and behaviors are passed from generation to generation, from, fam from a parent to their kids and the kids' kids and on down through the lines. And yeah, there are things that are transmuted, transmitted generationally that are biological, like a gene, genetic predisposition for whatever. But there are also social things, relationship patterns that we learn by watching. We, we learn those things and then we uh, consciously or unconsciously reenact those patterns over and over and over again down to the generation. Right? That's, that's what's possible. And sometimes those things are really healthy things, like you might learn from your parents a wonderful way of being intimate, a wonderful way of contributing to the world and making the world, that's wonderful, but there are also really horrible things and, and unhealthy things that we pass down through generations. That's just how it goes. That's one of the ways that human beings do things. Um, the Bible talks about multi-generation family transmission process in a very pre-modern way when the Bible says 
Maybe you've heard this, that we, quote, walk in the sins of our fathers. The same kind of thing, right? The things that have happened even generations before us still in some weird way can affect us, consciously or unconsciously. So we heard in the story today, uh, when we heard about how Tamar is raped by her brother Amnon, and then after she is raped, she goes to her brother Absalom, and Absalom basically says, oh, don't worry about it. Quiet your heart. Not that big of a deal, Tamar. When we see Amnon's violence and we hear Absalom's kind of acquiescence to that, maybe we shouldn't be surprised because Amnon and Absalom are, after all, children of who? David. And they have learned his lessons well. And yet we are surprised. We are surprised because we are human beings and when we hear stories of violence, we recoil. We are shocked. We are we are wrecked by the story, we are triggered, and we should be. We cannot confidently, to my mind, say the word of God for the people of God after this story is read. Scholar Phyllis Tribble calls it a text of terror. A text of terror. When I was working with this, this story in the Bible this week and trying to make this sermon that I'm trying to offer today, which is a hard sermon to preach, um, much harder to live through this story than it is to actually preach it, I want to say that, but it's hard to talk about this stuff. It's not a, it's not a fun sermon to preach. But as, I was, as I was preparing for the sermon and, and reading over this text, I felt like as I was reading this text over and over again, as I did this week, that I was reading through the opening, the script to the opening of an episode of uh, like Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I, I really felt like that's what I was reading in the Bible. You know how they say sometimes on criminal, uh, Law and Order, they say, this story has been ripped, they say, these stories have been ripped from the headlines, which is a haunting thing that, like, crime drama would be ripped from actual things, but, like, the fact that, like, crime drama could be ripped from, you know, the pages of the scripture is a haunting thing. So we're talking about this stuff, and um, I just want to say again, it's hard. And so, if you have stuff coming up right now and you're like, Where's the, when's the like, really happy part of the sermon going to come? I just want to say, it may come in a different way than you, ex than you hope for, right? We're going we're gonna to dwell with this stuff, and I think there is, there are some redemptive possibilities here, but only as we dive deep into what's going on, all right? And we're doing all this in the context of five weeks talking about sex and sexuality and building a rooted and deep and mature Christian sexual ethic. All of us are invited to do that. Maybe some of us are doing it for the first time in a conscious way. Maybe some of us are continuing to do it. What does that mean for me to be a person who has a sexuality in relationship with other bodies who have sexuality? Whether you are, you know, whether you are single or dating or engaged or married or divorced or widowed or intentionally celibate or unintentionally celibate or gay or straight or bisexual or transgender or um, lesbian um, to build a sexual ethic. And I just want to say, sometimes people when they get married or partnered, they think, oh, I don't have to worry about sexual ethics anymore. But sexual ethics carries into our marriage, into our partnership, right? Uh, you can still do, people commit sexual violence and abuse in marriages all the time. And it's not okay. Just because you're married doesn't mean that there's like a, oh, once you cross that line, everything's up for, no, no. 
So the sexual ethic is something that we have, that it's a lifelong thing, right? And it's always moving, and so we're always examining what does it mean for me to be this person now in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, in relationship, not in relationship. If you're celibate, you still have a sexual ethic, right? That's part of it, right? So, um, and so we've been asking these questions the past few weeks in this sermon series as we try to create this, this ethic, and I think here they are. Yeah, we're looking at these questions. Sometimes we think about sexual ethics in a rule-based kind of way, and that's okay sometimes, but how do we get beneath those, those rules and ask the question? So the first two weeks we dealt with what do I desire, why do I desire that, and we're beginning in the next two weeks today, and next week we talk about what does my partner desire. So next week we're talking about dating, which is lots of fun. Um, uh, perhaps, or not. <laughs> It'll be easier than this sermon, let me tell you. Um, hopefully. Um, but this week we're talking about uh, sexual violence and, and rape culture. And gosh, I wish that that didn't need to be a sermon in our sex and sexuality sermon series, but it does. And we have to talk about it. And so, as I see it, sexual violence and rape culture, sort of that first question of what do I desire, uh, sexual violence is a warped, uh, a warped response to that first question, where a personal desire is so warped that it seeks to dominate someone. Right, that's what is your desire? My desire is to dominate somebody. So that's a warped, a warped response to that. A combination of that and um, a total disregard for the third question. Uh, what does the other want or care about, right? So a warped, dominant desire paired with a total disregard uh, for the other person. Um, that's what sexual violence is. Um, and so, you know, we see in the story today Right? You heard the story read by Ty how Amnon doesn't really give a damn what Tamar wants. He doesn't, doesn't care what she desires or wants or dreams for or hopes for. He just doesn't care. He's thinking about only, only himself. And, and you know, what's even more devastating, as if that weren't devastating enough, what you heard in that story today, if you read the, the, chap, the part of the chapter right before the story, what you realize is even more devastating that Amnon actually planned this. He um, had this lust for Tamar. He called it love, but of course it is not love. You know how people call things love to justify violence sometimes? Oh, I, I really loved her, so I beat her up. You know, that's bullshit, right? It's not love. If, if, that, if, it, if it ends in violence, it's not love. It's something else. So let's just name that. It's not, let's stop panning over, oh, he really loved her, she really loved him, so she, so he, no. Tamar said, uh, Amnon said, I loved her, I loved, I loved Tamar, I have this, it's not love, it's something else, it's this lust, it's this disordered lust for his own half-sister, and so he dreams up this plot, he sets her up, dreams up this plot with his cousin, they're like, how are we going to make this happen? His cousin's sort of in on it, perhaps all the way, we don't know, but what, what Amnon does is he feigns, he pretends to be sick. He lies in bed and says, oh, I'm sick. And he says, David, Father David, can you send Tamar in to cook for me, to bring me some healing stuff? And David's like, oh, yes. So Tamar comes in to help him because she thinks he's sick in bed. And as soon as she comes into his chambers, she, he shows us, shows everyone his true colors. He sends everybody out of the room and says to Tamar, oh, come to my bed and feed me because I'm too sick to get out of bed. And when she comes in, uh, he says, come and have sex with me. He doesn't, he's, not, he's not sick. He's actually, he's very sick. Uh, not with the illness he thinks he has. And he says, come lie with me. Come have sex with me. And she says, no. 
I just think there may not be that much redemptive about the story, but there's a little redemption right there. She says no to this huge power, the king's son, this huge power. So she says no, and she resists him. And she says, she treats this, she tries to kind of engage him rationally. You know, Amnon, this is vile. You can't do this. Take, think about how this will play out. Think about the next day. Think about the rest of your life. Think about what this will do to me. Think about, if you won't think about me, think about what this will do to you. You'll be called a scoundrel and a fool, the worst of the worst in Israel. But Amnon does not give a damn. He is not listening to her. He doesn't care what she thinks. He is concerned only for himself. And he rapes her. It's hard to read this in the scripture. It's hard to read this anywhere. He rapes her. And just to be really clear, for the sake of interpretation, the Hebrew verb form here is very explicit. This is not consensual sex. He rapes her. And after he rapes her, Amnon's love for Tamar is exposed for exactly what it is, which is actually not just lust, it's something worse than lust. It's, it's lust that thinly covers hatred. And we know this because as soon as he's raped her, he says, get out. I was reading this article this week about rape and psychology, and one of the psychologists says this. She said that, that kind of after the rape, get out, that after the love, lust, the disgust that follows in the rapist, is actually quite common. She says, there is a good evidence that people who force their dominance on others, rapists, for example, sadists, for example, quote, are fighting what they perceive as weaknesses in themselves, and that the defeat of their victim only reminds them of their own weakness and consequently enrages them. So Amnon tells Tamar to get out. And here's the other, another piece of potentially redemptive maybe even good news. Tamar says, I'm not, I'm not defeated. You have, to take, you have to take responsibility for this. She, she again, even after this violent act, she says, you have to take responsibility for this. There must be justice. She won't leave the room. She won't leave. She's, she's holding him accountable. And he then calls in a service servant and, 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 and asks the servant, very politely actually in the Hebrew, please would you, to the servants, please would you get that woman out of this room? Actually, he doesn't even say that woman. Please would you get that, the Hebrew says, out of the room. He doesn't give a damn. And then you read the rest of the story. David doesn't give a damn. You'd think that, you know, the daughter could go to her father for some, for, for some see me as someone who's dignified and, and, and be, be, the, be the parent that you're supposed to be. Who is David concerned with? The text says that David's more worried about his firstborn son than he is his daughter. And then she goes to Absalom. Hey, brother, we're in this together. Come on, help me out here. And Absalom's like, as I said earlier, oh, don't worry about it, Tamar. Just quiet your heart. It's going to Don't let it get to you. Has any, have people been told that, you know? Don't let, the, don't let this get to you. Of course it gets to people. And Tamar, at this point, in the midst of, the, the midst of this violence, in the midst of all the men in the story saying, no, shut up, you don't count, you're not enough. Tamar, y'all, refuses to be quiet. <laughs> 
She refuses to be quiet. She refuses to be silent. She refuses to pretend like nothing happened. She refuses. She actually tears her garment, the garment that says that she has status, that she's a virgin. She tears it to show everybody that she has been violated. She puts ashes on her forehead to show publicly, this has happened to me and you have to contend with this. She does not go silently into the night. She says, this has happened. And look, I don't think there's any like really, really good news in this, in this story, but I think that is a bit of good news, that somehow in the midst of all that, Tamar finds deep in herself, maybe from God deep in her, that she finds the courage to say, not only no, not only I will, you have to be held to justice, but I will let people know what has happened. And I think that's very powerful and very godly that she is able to say in the midst no, this is what happened. Let, believe my witness. Whether we will believe her witness, whether they did then or whether we will now, it's up to us. But she makes the witness. She tells the truth. And we must say, I think, as a church, we must say, Tamar, we believe you. We believe you when you tell us what happened to you. There's this thing that human beings, take a deep breath, we're in it, okay? We're in it. It's tough. This is what the church needs to do, okay? We have lots of stuff we need to do. This is one thing we need to do, all right? So there's this thing that human beings do. It's called distancing, and it's when something happens that we're really uncomfortable with, and so we, we like to distance, which is basically just to remove ourselves from the, the actual condition. And sometimes you'll hear this, but, like, people will say, oh, like, when we hear a, a really troubling, terrible story like this, we'll hear, be like, Gosh, back in the Old Testament, things were really bad back then. <laughs> or we'll hear like a story about a rape that happened in the Middle East, say, and we'll say, those people over there in the Middle East, or those people over in Central Africa, how primitive they are, right? And just, it's like this, we distance ourselves from seeing the, the truth that like, right here, right now, in our cultural milieu, this is happening, right? Just in case you, I, we know that, right? We know that this is not something that happened only in the Old Testament or only in other countries. This happens right here. Just some stats. 18% of women, 1% of men report, report experiencing rape. Maybe others don't report it. Another 5% of women and men experience some sexual violence that's not rape. So to my math, that's 23% of women and 6% of men. Um, so you know people, maybe you are people who have experienced sexual abuse as adults, as teenagers, as children. 44% of victims under the age of 18, 80% of victims under the age of 30, 16% of college students, that's all genders together. 26% of women in college report sexual abuse. One in four, and the other stats there. This is not just something that happens in other places or back in the Old Testament, this happens right now. And it's an epidemic in our society. It probably always has been, but we're now just waking up to the fact this is part of our culture, that this happens. And it has become uh, clear, not only here, but uh, on college campuses, it is particularly part of the culture. Um, there was a story in the Chicago Reader which from two weeks ago, which I commend to you, 
which talks about the University of Chicago down the south side, how they had a really bad track record of acknowledging and dealing with rape culture on their campus. And so through a lot of reasons, uh, by a lot of reasons, a lot of people's witnesses, they have changed the way they do um, education and preventative, proactive, pre-rape, uh, uh, pre-violence, trying to get ahead of that so it doesn't just happen. And they've changed the way they do things. And so now, in orientation week, this just happened last week, if you go to the University of Chicago, you would hear like, here's where you get your books, and here's how you use your food card, and here's how you, you know, access Moodle, whatever you know, your, your uh, thing is. And by the way, our other message for you is this one. Don't be a rapist. That is a core message now at uh, the fresh, uh, freshman, fresh women orientation at the University of Chicago. By the way, don't be a rapist. I don't, I think this is so interesting and so good that that's now a message at orientation. By the way, don't be a rapist. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about sexual assault and sexual violence and rape culture, we put a lot, as a society, put a lot of pressure on the potential victims to always be on the defense. Always be watching, make sure you take care of yourself, don't put yourself in a, in a difficult position, don't be stupid. Don't be. Don't 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 be. Don't put yourself in a situation where you could get raped. You know. And, and you know. Of course. Of course. Here's a rape rape whistle. You know. Make sure you have your rape whistle with you all the time. Right. It's shifting the responsibility for rape culture from the potential victims to the actual potential perpetrators. Uh, it's not. Make sure you don't have a get raped. It's now. Do not rape people. Do <laughs> you hear the difference? Like. <laughs> The responsibility is all of ours, but particularly it's responsibility for those people who might commit a rape not to do one, right? <laughs> I mean, that goes, it sounds like, yeah, well, of course. But for years, our like, education has been, like, particularly at women, like, you better, if you get raped, it's really your fault, basically. It's not. It's not. No, no one, no one, no one, no man, no woman, no one deserves to be raped. And if anyone's ever told you that, it's a lie. No one deserves, no one deserves to be, have violence acted on them. No one. There's this other thing that happens when we talk about systemic injustice. Uh, there's people who say, um, oh, this is really isn't a culture. This isn't like um, a deep tectonic thing. This is just the result of like a few bad apples who are making it you know, really bad for the rest of us. They give, us they, give, they give all men a bad name. And so we don't really need to address this. Culturally, we just need to sort those bad apples out and send them to jail. And I just want to say, can, let's just commit as a church to, to never say something like that, okay? That, let's just not, that's just another form of distancing, okay? We're just distancing. It's, it's, we don't really have a problem, it's just the problem of a few bad people, you know? Um, we have to look at the culture in the church, in the academy, in the business world. We have to look at all the cultures that are forming us. And we have to ask the question, is the way that our cultures are set up, what in the way our, our cultures are set up are promoting this or allowing this uh, and suppressing uh, witnesses to the, that would say otherwise? So when the clergy, for example, when the clergy sex scandal broke out about 15 or 20 years ago, right? It was, came to light in the Catholic Church, but it happened in every church. It wasn't just the Catholics. 
it would have been totally and completely insufficient and unfaithful to say, oh, only a few bad priests have done this, right? It would, we have to look at the whole system. We have to look at the whole system of what it promotes, what it values, what it suppresses, what it, what it silences, and say, is there something about the way we have set church up that allows this to happen, that makes it a ground where this can happen over and over again? We have to ask that question. We have to. It's a, it's, it's a similar thing with police brutality, in my opinion. You know, uh, particularly police brutality in general, but particularly police brutality against women and men of color. Right? You hear this like, oh, it's just a few bad officers. Look, of course, most, most police officers are good, faithful human beings doing their jobs well. Right? But we have to look at the whole culture and ask, is there some way, is there something about the way we have set up policing in general that promotes this kind of violence? We have to ask that question. This is the same thing with sexual violence, right? Sometimes you start talking about rape culture, and people will say, oh, God, more man-hating. I wish we could stop with the man-hating stuff. I really have never actually met a man-hater. I don't know what that person looks like. <laughs> I have actually met some women-haters, but that's another, actually, I guess that's this sermon. Um, and so, like, we have to look at the whole culture. Of course, the overwhelming majority of men are people who do not commit sexual violence. Of course. And yet we have to ask, is the way that we have set up the culture for masculinity in this society, is it doing something to set people up for this kind of thing? We have to ask that question. As people who follow Jesus, as people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have to ask that question. I'm going to play this clip. Um, this is from Amy Schumer. I have mixed feelings about Amy Schumer. Um, <laughs> just want to say that. But I appreciate comedy uh, that can get into an issue in a very uncomfortable way. That's what good comedy does. Good comedy. There's like there's sloppy comics too. But a good comedy, I think, exposes uh, cultural truths and and it tries to expose them and sometimes humiliate them. So I want to say. This is a, just a trigger alert for this clip. Um, I do not ever believe in rape jokes. I don't think what I'm getting ready to show is a rape joke. If I did think it was, I wouldn't show it to you because I don't think rape jokes are funny um, and shouldn't be told. But this is not a rape joke. I, don't think, I think this is a, an exposure of the culture that says rape is just a part and parcel of life. So Amy Schumer. It's a, it's a spoof on Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure what you heard about me, but I do things a little different than y'all are used to here in Stuford Heights. This season, we're going to be the first team in the county to run no huddle offense. What? You don't like that? You can just look at my 14-2 record Northeast last year. Second, we do two days every day. Mm-hmm. And third night, I just need you to go with me on this one. Coach, we play football. My team, my rules. You don't like it? Don't let the door rape you on the way out. Can we rape an awakened? No. Nope. What if it's Halloween and she's dressed like a sexy cat? Nope. What if she thinks it's rape, but I don't? Still no. What about like a, a sexy ladybug? Yeah. Nope. A ghost? What about a sexy owl? 
Sexy Transformer? What if my mom is the DA and won't prosecute? Can I write? No, you cannot. What if she's drunk and has a slight reputation and no one's gonna believe her? That ain't allowed. Okay. The girl said yes to me the other day, but it was about something else. No. What if the girl <laughs> said yes, but then she changes her mind out of nowhere? Like a crazy person. You gotta stop. No, you gotta stop! <laughs> All right, it's funny, it's painful, it's both, right? This is ingrained in our culture, right? You've heard people say those things, right? You've heard people say those things and actually mean them and not in the comedy sketch, right? Um, so that's in the culture. Why is this in the Bible, right? This is in the Bible. I wanna say two things about that. One, um, I am, I think it's good is not the word, glad is not the word, but I think it's important to recognize that, and maybe even helpful, that stories like this are in the Bible. They can be used to reinforce culture, absolutely, and that would be a negative use of them. But they can be used to expose um, the truth about what we do. Um, they can hold up a mirror and say, uh, look, look at what you do, people when you get distracted, when you get distance from God. I want to be really clear where I am theologically. I don't think just because something is in the Bible that it is a plain endorsement of that activity by God. I don't think just because something is in the Bible that it's a tacit approval by God or part of God's will or part of God's desire. I want to go on record. I do not believe that the rape of Tamar was God's will. I do not think the rape of Tamar is what God wanted. I do not believe that any rape is ever what God wants. I don't believe that violence is what God desires. I don't believe that sexual violence, more clearly, is what God desires. And so I want you to hear me, for those of you who have maybe experienced sexual violence or have been abused and been told by someone that that was, God was trying to teach you something, or God was in that, and you don't know what it's about yet, but God meant that. I want to tell you, in my opinion, no. No. God is not behind the rape of anyone. God is not behind violence to anyone. And I just want you to hear that. And maybe you, maybe you hear that here, but don't believe that here yet, and that's okay. But I want you to hear that from me today. God is not uh, behind that. Okay? Which is another reason I think we should retire the phrase, everything happens for a reason. Um, especially, maybe always, I know some people really like that, and that's, a, that's, that's you, not me. Um, <laughs> let's, let's at least retire it when we're dealing with things like this, okay? Because God is not the reason for violence ever. We can never say, why did this happen? Why did I get raped? Why did someone molest my kid? Oh, everything happens for a reason. That's BS. That's BS. You cannot say that about God. God does not, God is not the reason for, 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 for which a rape happens. That's not the reason. Maybe everything happens for a reason if you can say like, yeah, uh, everything happens for a reason, but not everything happens for a divine reason. Everything happens for a reason, but sometimes that reason is like rape culture. That's the reason it happened, because people are sick, you know? Uh, so let's just, let's stop saying that. 
at least as a cover over our own anxiety, just another form of distancing. It's in the Bible. It's not, to my mind, God's will, but it is this chance for us to look in the mirror and see God saying, hey, look, look at what, we, what you've become. Look at what happens when you don't, um, when you're not undergoing the gospel. Look at what happens when you don't have regard for other people. Look at what happens. Look at what happens. And I think that this stuff is in the Bible as we, as we begin to read this as part of our biblical tradition and accept it's there, we have to contend with it, it actually helps us prepare for experiencing this stuff and responding to this stuff when it happens in our real lives. So when it happens to someone, and it will, God, I wish it wouldn't, but it does, it will again. Someone who has experienced sexual violence can read the text and say, look, in, there's Tamar, someone else has experienced what I'm experiencing. Someone who is in the story has experienced what I am experiencing. And so just knowing that someone else in the scripture has experienced that and testifies to that can be a little comfort. I don't think it's the best. I don't think it solves everything. But just knowing that can be part of the healing. Oh, Tamar gets it. She, Tamar saying to the, to the abused victim, me too. That happened to me too. And when we, when we experience people saying to us, me too. Tamar or in our congregation here or in the world, there is a sense that we can begin the process of healing when someone can hold that with us. So as we try to be a church that's a healing church, I want you to know if you have experienced sexual violence, have been the victim or the survivor, however you think about that or describe yourself, I want you to know that we can hold that with you if you want. I want to encourage you on your own time, on your own time, to know that if you want to talk to someone about that, um, I will hold that with you. If you want to talk to someone who's your same gender and that's not me, I can help find someone for you. I can help you find a, talk, a therapist to talk to. But that part of that healing is like Tamar to say, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. And I just want to say for those of us who might have come from family systems where this is the norm, where sexual violence is the norm, or violence is the norm, or where we are taught that women uh, should be denigrated, or where we are taught, whether we are women or men, that women are less than men, that women are not equal to men, or they're equal, but, but not really. You know, they're equal, sure they're equal, but they can't be ordained, they can't teach Sunday school, they can't hold the presidency, you know, they're equal, but not really. If, if that's what you come from, uh, which is, in a sense, what all of us come from, let's just say, by the power of the gospel working in us and the Holy Spirit, let's just say, that stops with me. I'm not going to pass that shame to anybody else. Let's just say, you know, Jesus, Jesus, in a sense, that's what he did. He came from this family where all this shit went down. He was like, you know what? We're going to do something different. It stops with me. He went to the cross to show us it stops with me. He rose from the dead to show this way of doing things, it stops with me. If you, if you want, you have to still accept that. Right? Let's be a church that's a healing church that holds people 
when they tell the truth and say, I believe you, that not just holds that and cares for people, but also says to society, like the trumpet blast of the prophets, we will not stand for this in society. Let us be that kind of church. And let's be a church that always reminds people that no matter what has happened or will happen, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's be a church that tells that and lives that and, uh, and dwells deeply from that space. Oh, it's so much, y'all. Can't do it by ourselves. Need Jesus. Need the Holy Spirit. Need each other. Okay? Amen.